Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Fly Pass podcast. I'm Hans from Key Aero and I'm here with uh, Kevin Taff Stone, Chief Engineer for uh, Vulcan to the Sky Trust. Hi there. Hi there. And Phil Spears, who's a trustee at Vulcan to the Sky Trust. Hi, Phil. Hi, Hans. I should explain, actually, where we are. It's, uh, this is quite exciting because we've never done a podcast on location, which I know is slightly sort of, you know, going against the point of a podcast, which you can't see. But anyway, here we are inside the cockpit of XH558. It's pretty, it's pretty cool in here, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's cramped, but extremely cool. <laughs> i tell you what, you say it's cramped. That is a very, very good word for it. I mean, to get into the actual one of the, you know, the, the two pilot seats requires some dexterity, doesn't it? Yes. And uh, you need to be um, athletically built and not because uh, it's, it's a tight squeeze, should we say. I mean, you did very well, Ted. I know. I struggle. <laughs> I'm not the man I was. So uh, getting in there is... Um, it, it, it does, re- you know, it does require a certain a, a certain skill. But I mean, let's let's talk about it in here a little bit. I mean, you know, Taff, what is it like to you know to be in a Vulcan uh, when it's flying? Well, it, basically, you sat inside a tin can. As I say, it's not very large. It's it's a little bit noisy, but not too bad. You could just about to have a conversation, but it's smooth. There's only very small windows that you can see out of. So the crew basically spent all of their time looking at all the instruments and left the driving to the the two pilots in front because they're the ones that's only really got any visibility at all. I'm sure I'd fancy this for 17 hours. <laughs> I think that's an undertaking, isn't it? Um, it just shows the dedication and professionalism of those people that used to fly the, the beast. So I'll just explain to you, actually, um, for those who haven't been inside uh, a Vulcan cockpit, which I'm imagining will probably be most people, let's be honest. So it's quite a steep climb, isn't it? You know, up just to get onto, you know, what would you call this kind of, um, this sort of first level, if you like? Well, it's the rear crew level. Uh, and then you'd go up another set of steps into the, the top platform where the two pilots were then. Yes, yeah, so as you look up, the 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 actual the actual two pilot seats, they kind of look miles away in a, in, in, in a sense, don't they? So you've got... Those two seats um, facing forward out of some very tiny windows. We'll come on to that in a minute because, from what I can see, there's not a huge amount of visibility if you're actually in, in you know, piloting it. And then on this um, this rear level, you've got three seats that are sort of, you know, perched up against a kind of makeshift desk. Really, what would what would the three people sitting there be doing? Uh, the, the th- there were the three main crew at the back uh, looking uh, aft. On the left hand seat, you had the navigator radar. He had the bombing control panel on his left-hand side and the bombing radar that would be in front of him. The centre seat was your navigator plotter. He was your main navigator. He had all the navigational aids and all that lot and radio in front of him. And then in the right-hand seat, you had the air electronics officer. On the back wall used to be all the electronic countermeasures, the jammers, chaff, flare, that they, that was used obviously to try and protect the aircraft. And then on the right-hand side, he'd have all the electrical power, which used to look after the aircraft. You, you mentioned that um, it could have taken a, uh, a crew of seven 
Where, where, would, the, where would the other two go? Uh, the other two was just as you come into the cockpit, there's a little step to the, the left and the right of the ladder, and they would sit in there, and that was normally the crew chiefs. Uh, because of if the aircraft went away for anywhere, then they would take the crew chiefs away with them, and the crew chiefs then would carry out the maintenance and the servicing of the aircraft when they reach their destination. That's actually where I'm sitting. Actually, well, that's where we're sitting at this moment in time, Phil. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's fine sitting here doing a doing a podcast. I'm not quite sure I'd sort of like you know fancy it on uh, any <laughs> any length of um, journey in particular. But you know, but but there we go. I mean. It looks like a lot of um, like a lot of aircraft, certainly of, of this era. It looks there are just a million a million switches, aren't there? I mean, is it a, a complicated aircraft to fly, Taff? Uh, it, it is a complex aircraft. There are a lot of systems, and see, which is why they they had the two pilots. Normally, the of the you know the, uh, the the pilot looking after the main flying controls and all that of the systems. And then the co-pilot would be looking after the fuel systems and all the other bits and pieces. So it was it was a dual role up the up the front, and then of course you had the three completely different people at the back. Let's talk about the uh, the cockpit because when you go out there, I mean, you can, the visibility is alarmingly limited. <laughs> well, you must remember this was actually designed as the British nuclear deterrent, so you would be dropping a nuclear bomb, and with the flash, the last thing you would need to do is sit in the glass goldfish bowl because obviously so it was very compact cockpit that could be blacked out i suppose if you're carrying a nuclear deterrent i wouldn't mind being able to see where i'm going just a little bit more but then i suppose i'm not a pilot so it's um <laughs> you've got your little letterbox that you can look out of yeah exactly what more do you want <laughs> when 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 did you guys first see a vulcan in the flesh uh, the first time I vaguely remember coming across one, uh, I, I think it must have been about 15, and uh, I was in a cycling club, cycling up through the Welsh, the Black Mountains around Brecon, and I was just coming to the brow of a hill after cycling up rather fatigued, and all of a sudden, this shadow come from the other side of the mountain, didn't know what it was, didn't I have a clue. Nearly, luckily, I wasn't going fast enough to fall off. And it was only a couple of years later when I joined the air force, I realised, oh, it was a Vulcan. <laughs> what about you, Phil? I think it was. I was about thirteen years old, and I went along to a, an air show at Old Warden, and um, the Vulcan came over. And my my recollection of it as a thirteen-year-old boy is like this amazing thing coming over, and then. Almost going vertical, and the noise was absolutely visceral. It, it shook you. It made you put your fingers in your ears. And that was the time when car alarms had just gone out, and it was a little grass airfield <laughs> with all these old aeroplanes and this giant creature coming across, belching smoke and noise. It was absolutely awe-inspiring, fascinating. And lots of, uh, and about 4,000 car alarms going off. Uh, with, with all the noise and the beeping going off on them, but well worth the experience. Yeah, I was going to say, one of those sounds you've described was really, really, really amazing. The other the other was probably very, very annoying, actually. I can imagine. <laughs> it's, it's funny, when you talk to people about the Vulcan, there's a lot of um, kind of, you know, a passion and emotion involved, isn't it? It's just a, one, of those, one of those historic air, aircraft that really still gets people, doesn't it? I think 
It's been around for a long time. We're coming up to 70 years of the Vulcan next year, aren't we, Taff? Yeah, that is in the early 50s that the prototypes were flying. So most people who are alive today, given that we flew XH558 up until 2016, have had the opportunity to see a Vulcan, to see one flying. It's such a big, iconic shape that you can't really miss it. And it's so loud, you can't really miss hearing it. So. I think it, it evokes that passion in everyone because it's been around a long time. It's a survivor, and it's something that both young and old have got in common. I also think that it's because it's so unique looking. Or if you think about, you know, how you know commercial aircraft essentially do look quite similar. You know, don't don't take me to task on that Boeing if you're listening, but they kind of do. I think most people on the street, if you stop them, wouldn't be able to tell a triple seven from a seven three seven really. But in a historic aircraft, obviously, there's a there are you know some unique looking ones, but I cannot think of anything else that looks even remotely like a Vulcan. I think that there's there's two aircraft that everyone would be able to instantly identify. One of them is the Concorde, and one of them is the Vulcan. People know the aircraft because it's just an iconic shape. We were um, actually earlier on, and if you uh, you know watch some of the, um, the 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 video footage that we've um, that we filmed, we were standing on the wing. That was quite like a, I wasn't expecting that when we turned up. I didn't know you were allowed to stand on a on a Vulcan wing. Are you allowed? Or you know, yes, yeah. It, it's they say it's quite a big, strong structure. It says 111 foot wingspan. So they say there's quite a bit of it. <laughs> You were tell us just reminds me of what you were telling me about you know what was underneath it. We were standing on about five fuel tanks, weren't we, at one stage? Yes, so in the wings there's five fuel tanks which held uh, the majority of the fuel. Uh, so the rest of it was in the main fuselage bit, and so in the wings there's probably a, I should think around about forty thousand pounds of fuel, which is about twenty thirty thousand liters. I think uh, Phil worked out earlier. We, we we did a quick calculation. We reckon that if you put it in your family saloon car, loaded the family up with a few picnics, that's enough fuel to drive you to the moon and half the way back. Okay, so that's so the moon, you know, roughly speaking, about two hundred and fifty thousand miles away, and then halfway back again. <laughs> In a in a standard Ford Mondeo. As long as I'm not paying to fill it up, I'm happy. <laughs> Other cars are available. <laughs> that is, and you were, we were talking also about the the engine, weren't we? And the amount of air that was kind of getting sucked in. Remind me of that. Um, that's that that stat because my simple brain needs things repeated. Well, I, I think we we again did a quick calculation. We, we think that each engine is taking in about a squash court full or a house full of air every second and pushing that in through the engines, burning the, the kerosene to generate the power out the back. And what was it, half 8,000 pounds of thrust? No, so, no so just under 17,000 pounds of static thrust per engine. So that's about eight and a half tonnes of thrust per engine. <laughs> so, again, <That's> enough. <laughs> more power than each engine has more power than a Formula One grid. <laughs> that is... It's quite hard to get your head around this sort of stuff, actually, isn't it? When you when you when you put it like that, I think numbers can be um, deceptive if delivered as numbers. But when compared to where that will get you or what that is, 
you begin to understand the enormity of the task of designing, um, building, maintaining, and flying an aircraft like this. And it's a real credit to the trust and, and the engineers like Taff and Sam, who we spoke with earlier, um, that they can keep an aircraft like this in essentially flight-worthy condition. Um, it's a complex piece of kit. It was the last four-engine British aircraft, wholly British-made aircraft, flying when it was flying. It's incredible. Taff, you've got a bit of a history with uh, with, with the Vulcan. Tell us about, um, you know, take us back to 1984. Yeah, it's uh, our first, when I joined the Air Force, uh, came out of training in 1981, and I came onto the Vulcans in the second line servicing doing Basically, the like your car goes into the garage, and as, as it's maintenance, I was working in the hangars uh, on the Vulcans, and uh, I worked on them during the Falklands. And then I was lucky enough to be part of the Vulcan display flight when it first formed on the other aircraft, which was XL four two six, back in nineteen eighty four. Got promoted, joined, uh, went to a little dinky team called the Red Arrows for six and a half years. Never heard of them. Uh, before I was lucky enough to come back onto the Vulcan display team back in '91, uh, until she came out of service in '93. What was that? Um, you, you mentioned the, the, the Falklands and working on the Vulcan in that period. What was that like? Uh, that was very intense. We were working twenty-four hour shifts. Uh, if some have seen the old TV programs, you know we were fitting systems from other aircraft. Uh, over the weekend, so it was into the systems. We fitted navigational equipment from the VC-10 aircraft, electronic countermeasures from the Buccaneers, anti-radar missiles from the Buccaneer, and we also got some from America as well. And it was continually being involved, and say we were working 24-hour shifts on it. It's been just absolutely exhausting. It, it, it was. It was... It was but again, it was the old country pride. The things that we were doing were making an effort. And obviously with six or seven, then went down and bombed the runway at the Falklands and basically put it out of touch for the Argentinians to be able to use to get their, you know, their fast jet fighters to be able to be based there. It was just phenomenal. And to be part of that, part of history. What's your sort of favourite Vulcan story that you were sort of involved in? Uh, well, my favourite story is obviously bringing this back to life. You know, I was on the display team that took it to Brunton Thorpe in 93, thinking, well, that's probably the last time I'll ever see this fly. And then to be part of the team to get a restored to flight sort of 15 years later. That must, the, the emotion must be amazing to have, you know, you, you, you say you had to um, redo five miles of cabling, of which there is 100 miles in this aircraft. That's yeah. you know, so you've you know you've you put in a shift on this thing, haven't you? Oh, one or two hours. <laughs> so it got to the stage for the last six months of the restoration because we was working twelve, fourteen hour shifts, and I lived two hours away. I was sleeping in the library. If you um, I mean, how how many hours do you think you've kind of uh, worked on on this aeroplane? And in the pie chart of your life. How uh, how big a slice has been spent on this? Probably about thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's. It, I mean, it, it's incredible to be able to kind of you know restore something like this is 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 pretty unbelievable, isn't it? We were in the um, 
the Bombay, that was quite a, an interesting uh, part of it, wasn't it? I wasn't expecting to uh, be able to go in, into that either when uh, when we turned up. Yeah, it's, it's quite a, a vast area and it's quite handy for several things. Even uh, when we first come out of restoration, we had a primary school visit doing our educational tours and I actually uh, led uh, a classroom up in the Bombay with all the uh, <laughs> eight and nine-year-olds they were really, and apparently one of the things they will always remember was even two years later, because we kept in touch with the school, was that the man said if he were naughty, he'd open the doors. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very well-behaved class. I love that, that you, when you were pointing to that bit of tape that was had up S. SWS and I said, Whoa, what does that stand for? Remind me. Yeah, it was a special weapon systems, as I say, because it could either be used in the conventional or the nuclear role. All the systems were all wired in and ready to go. So it was fit, form, and function. And basically, to change it from a conventional bomber to a nuclear bomber, all you would do is disconnect the weapons control panel, which was in the cockpit here, disconnect the electrical plugs put them in a storage point and then take the cables that were in the storage point and connect them to a nuclear bombing panel. <laughs> so an early version of plug and play then, Ted. That's the one. <laughs> Sounds so simple when you wrote Yeah. <laughs> Actually, um, when we were in there, it looks like, um, I was thinking, it looks like quite a cool place to have a party. There's been one or two doing air shows that may have had specific... Uh, yeah, here we go. We're getting down into it now. Some... Uh, <laughs> Private party, should we say? You can't just trust the military to leave the. <laughs> I might not have always be in the military. <laughs> oh, that is that is quite that is quite. Well, I think when you've worked as hard as uh, the team did yourself and Dr. Robert Fleming, uh, a, a small snifter in the Bombay is is well earned, Taff. Oh yes, it was well, it was well uh, received. I can tell you. <laughs> also, the curvature of it. It does, you know, as you're saying, it does look like the sort of place that you could have a nice little lie down. I reckon I could sort of happily fall asleep in there. It's been known. <laughs> Especially when you're on exercise or something, stuck out in the airfield at three o'clock in the morning. Rather convenient place to lie down, I think. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the the, the, the trust, uh, Phil, and, um, and, and the work you're doing. Talk about Operation Safeguard. So what we're looking for now is to raise some funds to secure and build a hangar so we can preserve XH558 in the manner she deserves to be preserved in for the public to come and visit, to come and experience, as you have done today, to come and look around to see what the aircraft is. And to draw further forward from that, the inspiration that was behind the Vulcan being designed and developed, and use that to inspire children of all ages, to look to the future and the future of aviation and how we are going to maintain that and improve that and make that less carbon negative and turn it into a carbon positive experience in the future. So part of Operation Safeguard will be what we call a green technology hub, which we're looking forward to the green technologies of tomorrow that we need to solve the problems of global warming that we're experiencing today. So reducing carbon. And it's an idea to get, as Robert always said, we want the children of all ages to come in, be inspired by this aircraft and its story to go on and solve the problems of the future. So 
to help them into a career studying science, technology, engineering, mathematics, to look at the engineers of the future, the manufacturer of the future, to solve the problems that we face post-COVID-19. Because we've been great at solving the problems in COVID-19, the pace which we've moved at in this pandemic, creating a vaccine, is incredible to me. The bigger problems come on with the future of the planet and what we need to do about that. So if we can get children engaged with that, that is going to be a massive positive going forward. And to use an aircraft like this, the inspiration of that, we think will be a great way to show the way forward for the young people of the UK. Because I suppose, you know, if you if you were to, you know, put a, you know, like you said, you know, an eight, eight or nine year old in front of the Vulcan, I mean, it would really sort of blow their minds and they would probably think of it as quite a, you know, weird looking futuristic aircraft. They wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to them that this is, you know, this is like a 1950s, you know, thing. they probably never even heard of the 1950s. That's like, they probably just think that that's when their parents were born. But I mean, it's, it's quite, it's quite incredible, isn't it, to pick up on the innovation of this aircraft and then sort of apply those kind of principles and how, how you can kind of get, get the next generation interested in being engineers. Cause that's like you said, they're the ones that are going to, you know, save the, uh, save the earth, aren't they? Well, when, when you look at the step change that came along from both vehicles, the Lancaster and the Vulcan, were made by Avro. And there's a 10-year separation in that lifespan. So if you look at the advances that were made from the Lancaster bomber to the Vulcan bomber, you can see a fantastic amount of innovation and creativity has gone into designing a specific aircraft to meet a specific role. And it's capturing that essence and taking that forwards in the young people of today that we're trying to do. Honouring the past and inspiring the future. That was Dr. Robert Fleming's buzzword for the Vulcan. It still means so much today. You know, Robert was an inspirational man who brought this aircraft back together with people like Taff, flew this around and generated in excess of 60 million smiles at air shows and as it transited around the country. And we just want to build on that legacy and say, here's inspiring the future. It's over to you now. Here's the ideas. Let's have a play, go forward and make some solutions for the nation. Whereabouts is um, Operation Safeguard uh, at, at the moment as it, as it stands? So we have um, a target of just over £4 million to secure the hangar and the, the centre and the visitor attraction. We still need to generate more income. We still need to generate um, more money to get us through to that. So what we're, we've, we've done is we've launched Operation Safeguard. Um, come onto the Vulcan to the Sky website. Look at that. Please join up, donate. That will get your name on an auxiliary fuel tank we have that will form part of the display. And we also have two old Vulcan wingtips that we're going to put names on of major donors and don't people who've joined the scheme for 30 pounds i think all the details are on the website please look it up please if you can spare some some cash please donate and please come and see us when we're open we guarantee it will be a fantastic experience to come and visit this aircraft this is this is the bit where you say what the uh, website details are um, I think if you Google Vulcan to the sky, I think we're there. Taff, have you got an address in, in your head? It's www.vulcantothesky.org. 
There you go. There we go. There you go. So finally, what is your what is let's face it, the Vulcan is massive. What is your favorite favorite bit of it? Um well say because my base trade electrics, I like playing with the uh, the electrical power panel on it. <laughs> <laughs> Although it is quite fun when I do the runs as well, making the noise. <laughs> So my favourite experience of the Vulcan has actually been today, where I managed to get up on the wing, lie down, and watch you guys doing some filming in perfect peace and quiet. It's a fantastic view, and not many people have done that, and it was a great pleasure. Now, how many people do you reckon have um, have, have stood on the uh, on the wings of this aircraft? In service, who knows? Out of service? Out of service, yeah. Probably thirty or so at the most. That's a sort of select band of uh, of people, I think. I've got to tell you, I did take my shoes off as well. <laughs> oh, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, but he's got metal studs in his. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. You shouldn't have turned up in your golf shoes. Come on. <laughs> no, it is just absolutely, absolutely incredible. One other thing, actually, that I need to ask you about. So as I sit here, so I'm looking up at you, Taff, you're sitting in one of the the uh, the two pilot seats. So behind me, those three other seats. Now, as I look down here uh, in front of me, so this is directly below the two pilot seats, there's kind of a, a, a sort of circular glass window what's uh what's that well for? that's the old bomber's window as i say you know it was it was designed as a bomber or whatever and of course on the lancasters and all that lot you had the bomber now would be lying down there spotting where to go because if you were flying carrying the, the old nuclear bomb uh, and it was mainly done off the computers but of course if this you know the new modern thing called like the computer failed then they can obviously revert, go down to manual. Are we in Russia yet? And then, uh, here we go. I suppose this is pre-Microsoft, isn't it? So, you it know, is, computers yeah. were... Um, when you say computer, can you just describe the kind of computers that the Vulcan had? Because it um, wasn't the computers as we know no, them. No, it was analogue as valves and levers and pulleys and control rods and things like that. But they also used to fit cameras there. So when they used to do competitions... Then when they pressed the button, it would take a photograph and then they could calculate, you know, how close they would have been to dropping the bomb. So it was also used for that as well. It was all built into the system. I love that. No matter how many technological advances we can make, the fallback is look through that window, uh, press the button and hope for the best. That's the one. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Well, look, thank you very much, guys, for uh, talking to us. And thanks for um, letting Piero into a uh, cockpit of this amazing aircraft. Welcome. Thank you, Hans. Thanks very much. And, uh, yeah, well, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, see you again same time again next week. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.